the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Ladies, we're back with another Crime Estate Yay, episode. we're here. I know. This has become my favorite thing to do on a Friday. I know. Me too. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a little bit different today. We're juggling. Kids are out of school for a school holiday, but we're making it happen anyway. Four-day weekend. I know. So we have Monday to juggle too. Yeah. Maybe we'll be coming down from the candy high on Monday and go easy on us. I mean, you can be optimistic about that <laughs> if you want to be. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And it's, you know, we're here in spring now and it has been crazy. Talk about juggling everything. The market is heating back up. I mean, I feel like we are at, you know, Mm -hmm. post-pandemic buying craziness again. Right. Yeah. I feel like it started earlier this year in the spring. Like it usually is in the spring, but it feels like earlier in March that it started. And we, I think we both had buyers putting offers on houses this weekend and just multiple offers. And I had a a renter that I took out and multiple applications on rental homes and it's getting wild. Yeah. You know, I don't know how it is on the coast, but here in the middle of the country, uh, we're definitely seeing more buyer demand than sellers. And, you know, there's always this age old adage in real estate that the minute the peeps hit the shelf at Target, you know, the houses will start coming on the market, but we just don't have enough houses to sell right now. Right. Yeah. Peeps. Uh, someone was eating a watermelon sour patch type peep. I'm like, no, they're like, they're just, they're one flavor. It's yellow, pink, and blue. That's it. Oh, they have franchised, or I guess that's not the right word. They have monetized the peep world. Mm. I mean, all sorts of different flavors. Apparently they have like shirts and bedding and like decor now. So if you're into peeps, you can get it all. (laughs) What a time to be alive. I guess. That that is the one thing, like if I had to give up a food for the rest of my life, I could go the rest of my life and never have a peep. (laughs) I am not interested. Yeah. Well, there's no chocolate on it. That's true. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, you're going to give us a a story today, Alana. You want to jump right in? Sure. Um, We're bringing it back to Texas. Ooh, I love that. I'm excited about that, but we'll be in Fort Worth. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, in Dallas, we consider ourselves to be a little bit more elevated or classy. That's how people in Dallas feel. Not not saying the three of us feel that way, Hmm. but but don't you feel that's kind of the general... Stereotype. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, we're, I feel like we're more the top shelf margaritas their Lone Star beer, which is not a bad thing because we like both. Oh, yeah. Margaritas and Lone Star beer. But um, it, we feel worlds apart. We're only 30 miles away. And um, yeah, no, I think you're right, Alana. You know, um, Dallas and Fort Worth, you know, we're considered like the DFW area, mm-hmm. but they are two very distinct cities. Large cities, you know, in mm-hmm. close proximity right. to one another. Each other own feel. Absolutely. And that's sort of fun because like sometimes we'll go for the weekend and do Fort Worth like as a staycation, right? And you've mm-hmm. got the, um, especially when my son was little, he loved going to the stockyards and watching the cattle run every day. You know, they don't need to run cattle every day now. They just do it, you know, right. as part of the the ambiance of being in the stockyards. But, um, and he, we, you know, we'd take him to this little bar that had... Uh, saddles as seats. Oh, fun. So those are some of my favorite pictures of like him and my dad on those oh, saddle seats. Oh, I love it because they lived out there. Yeah. Yeah. They lived out nice. there when he was little. So what, what about you, Melanie? Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of the stereotypes that out-of-staters have of Texas aren't really applicable to Dallas. I mean, like mm-hmm. in Dallas, 
I mean, almost everybody I know is not from Texas or as, you know, there's not nearly kind of the the Texas born and bred um, stereotype here Mm -hmm. in Dallas. But yeah, you definitely still see that in Fort Worth. For sure. Um, You know, that said, like, I love Fort Worth. I I don't go very often because, you know, it's 30 miles away and we all (laughs) live in our our bubble. Um, And there is the stereotype down in the kind of the stockyards. But it's getting like much nicer even down at the stockyards. Have you all been to the... Hotel Drover? No. Oh. I haven't. But was it you telling me about oh, that? It's How nice. amazing it it's, is? I mean, it's bougie nice. Oh. But I mean, it's still country, but like el- quite elevated. And there's like some wine bars and like like the restaurant scene around it is much better. So it's a different stockyard than uh, it used to be. But, you know, even honestly, outside of that area, there's a lot of really nice areas in Fort Worth. I like the downtown, and I think it has some of the best museums in the whole Mm -hmm, DFW Metroplex, some of the fine art museums, the um, Bass Performing Arts Center. But I also really like, and I think we're going to be touching on it today, some of the areas near Texas Christian University, Mm -hmm, TCU. mm -hmm. Um, Those are some really nice neighborhoods. My uh, uh, sister-in-law lives in Fort Worth, and she, I mean, it's really ni- nice and up and coming these days. But um, yeah, you know, as, as people in Dallas, we like to kind of make fun of Fort Worth, but, um, you know, at the same time, they make fun of us. Right. Oh, yeah. 100% what was the they do. golf tournament? Was it the Byron Nelson that they used to do in Fort Worth uh, every no, year? No, Colonial. The Colonial. So the Byron Nelson That's right. um, is typically more in between in Las Colinas area. Um, and the Colonial is actually, I think, really, really close to yes. where uh, our story is today. And um, that's in Fort Worth. And so, yeah, we we tend to go over there. And whenever we go to the Colonial, I'm like, wow, this neighborhood's nice. Uh, Well, I was going to say, it's been years since I went, but we went to the Colonial one year and I was blown away by that neighborhood. You know, definitely some old houses with some architectural gems in there. So Nice. We'll we'll be right around that area. Today's a Texas tale of oil money, big egos, lawsuits, hitmen, and 1970s crazy. Everything about this tale proves that everything is bigger in Texas. So it's time to put on your Stetson, pull up your boots, and buckle up. Because this is the story of T. Colin Davis and the murders of his stepdaughter, Andrea, and his estranged wife's new boyfriend, Stan Farr. Have you heard about this? So I did not know about this story until we started telling some friends about this podcast, and several of them recommended this story. So I didn't do the research on it. You did, but I'm excited to learn about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, my um, both my sister-in-law and my husband actually um, instantly recommended this story to us. And it's kind of funny because my husband grew up in the DFW area in the 1970s, and uh, this story was very relevant. And his son, T. Colin's son, played soccer on like opposing teams that my son Ooh. would play against. And apparently it was like all the parents, you know, gossiping oh, on the field. Oh, I oh, God, There's Colin Davis over there. There's Colin Davis over there. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you grew up in this era, um, in this general um, vicinity, it was a very well-known story. And I kind of, I think it kind of got forgotten about, at least by us, but uh, I think it's time for us to bring yeah, it up. let's do it. So it's the 1970s Fort Worth that we find T. Colin Davis, oil tycoon, multimillionaire, known philanderer, and accused murderer. At the time of the crime, Davis was one of the wealthiest men in the country and had just been separated from his second wife, Priscilla Lee, and she had been awarded temporary ownership of Stonegate Mansion and its belongings. It was a lavish mansion that Davis and Priscilla once shared that became the scene of one of Texas's most notorious murder cases. So let's describe the scene of the crime, and then we'll dig into the story of T. Colin Davis and the victims. 
Stonegate Mansion, often just called the Mansion, was located near Texas Christian University that we just talked about, and it was a massive 19,000-square-foot residence. In 1972, after separating from his first wife, Sandra Masters, Davis built a home at 4100 Stonegate Boulevard for $6 million. Holy cow. In today's dollars, that would be $39 million. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like some oil money right there. For sure. The home is on the edge of the Tanglewood neighborhood near the banks of the Trinity River, and today is one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Fort Worth. Stonegate was described as looking like a municipal or even museum-like building from the outside. At 101 acres, it sat on a hill overlooking downtown Fort Worth in the famous Colonial Country Club and boasted five bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, an indoor pool, 2,000-square-foot primary bedroom. That's giant. That's I can't even fathom. Right. You can't even call it a home. It's like a museum. That's yeah, There's nothing mansion. homey about 19,000 square feet. No. There's nothing homey about that. I mean, 2,000 square feet, like that's as big as some people's house. Yeah. Or bigger than a lot of people's houses. I think it's probably bigger than my house. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So for fun, I looked up the biggest home currently on the market in the city of Dallas. Do you have any guesses how big currently Ooh, the on the market? Of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Currently on the market. Um, I'm going to say 9,000 square feet. 9,000? I know you know, but <laughs> take a guess. Take a I mean, 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> 13,692 square feet wow. is the biggest yeah, on the market right now. Uh, so back to Stonegate. But wait, Alana, before you go on with this story, mm-hmm. can we talk about the indoor pool for a second? It's not really needed here, right? It's not. I mean, we love our pool and we have a heater on it. And I mean, occasionally we have to turn the heater on, but I mean, we swim almost all year round right. outside. Yeah. I, I think that's just like the ultimate, like I have money. I have that's an right. indoor pool. That's right. <laughs> yes. It's crazy. Have you ever sold a house with an indoor pool? No. No. Have you? No. I've seen some really creepy like indoor hot tub rooms in houses and we just like run that. from yes. this. No, I, yeah. I've seen that and that's really creepy. There's yeah. always carpet around it. Like yeah. gross. Yeah. <laughs> Super Agreed. gross. Mel, you guys should see the look that Melanie is giving us right now. Like who <laughs> would have an indoor hot tub room? More than you would think, Melanie. Uh, we're not talking about like a bathroom. No. Mm-mm. Huh. It's like <laughs> s- part sauna, part hot tub, part gross sex lounge, maybe. I mean, I should admit that during COVID, at the height of the pandemic, we bought an outdoor inflatable hot tub. <laughs> All classy. And, and. Honestly, we had a lot of fun with it. People would like, you know, like, you know, our one family that we sort of like would still hang out when the pandemic, we kind of uh, like in our little pod, they would come over and the kids would get in the fun. outdoor hot tub. Yeah. Inflatable. Oh, yeah. You still use it? Uh, we haven't, but it's still blown up in my garage. <laughs> so I should probably it's about time do, to pull that out. You know, yeah, I should probably do something about it. But hey, we were just trying to do anything we could and spend a lot of time outside. Absolutely. Right. So when Stonegate was built, in 1971 by architect Albert Komatsu, this 1970s all-white contemporary style home was surrounded by a 250-acre field. And even today, the elevation allows for views for miles. Colin's father actually owned the property that the home was built upon and inherited the land when his father died. So Colin planned the home for five years before construction started, and he did this by cutting out pictures from magazines that he gave to his architect. Colin was a knowledgeable collector of antiques and art, and the New York Times claimed he had a $400,000 Renoir in the bathroom. Apparently, he preferred 19th century European painters, and he personally sought out and bargained for each work that hung in the mansion. A 1977 D Magazine article describes that on a trip to New York, he, quote, 
spotted a painting of a ship in a gallery window. He ordered the limousine stopped before the painting and 115 other art objects. So he loved this home. He loved art. In a 1977 D Magazine article described on a trip to New York, he, quote, spotted a painting of a ship in a gallery window. He ordered the limousine stopped, bought the painting, and 115 other art objects. The gallery owner was so astonished that he was almost unable to write the order. That's crazy. Yeah. Priscilla's bathroom was gigantic and larger than many bedrooms. It was the only room in the house that she designed. The walls were a hot pink where they weren't mirrored and had a sunken marble tub under a huge crystal chandelier. Sounds like a Barbie palace. It really does. Additionally, before the separation, the living room had a brilliantly lighted six by eight portrait of Colin and Priscilla that dominated the great north wall. It was, I saw a picture of it. It's big. Six by eight, (laughs) like six foot by eight foot? Yes. That's crazy. It's, yeah. I mean, I guess when you have big walls, you need big art. Well, that's true. That's true. We don't have 19,000 square foot homes, so. No, no, I don't, you know, you got to be proportional. (laughs) Right. I know that's always like um, a problem for me. Like I go to uh, art shows and I'm like, oh, I'd love that painting. And I'm like, I don't have a wall Mm -hmm. to put there. Like, I mean, like I, th- my house doesn't have big empty wall spaces. I have windows and doors. <laughs> well, you all will appreciate this. I think we've told our listeners that my husband and I are building a house and we added on, you know, it was, it, we actually took the home we had and just added on. So we sort of know what worked before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow we made it so many windows that we don't have place for like the one piece of art in our home that I really love. And it's not oh, like... No. You know, it's from a local East Dallas artist, but it's just sentimental to me. And I just, I keep walking around thinking I got to find oh, a spot no. for this. You'll find a spot. Yeah. You'll find a spot. But I definitely don't have a spot for a six by eight foot portrait of me and my husband. Right. Well, Let's you should be clear. build a new wall. Oh, of course. Yeah. We'll yeah, just get just right on it. that. Yeah. Why not? So to tell the full narrative of Stonegate Mansion and what happened there, I need to touch on the backstory of the home and the owner. T. Colin Davis was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1933 to Kenneth W. Stinky Davis Sr., an oil tycoon, owner, founder of the world's largest oil supply company in Alice Maybound. Yeah, that was his nickname, Stinky. I love it. So Southern. Yeah. (laughs) The second of three boys, T. Colin, upon graduating from Texas A&M University, went to work with his dad and proved that he too had a keen sense for business. Stinky Davis, (laughs) I'm going to laugh every time I say that. Stinky Davis founded Ken Davis Industries International, Inc., which manufactured goods used in the petroleum industry. This conglomerate included more than 80 corporations doing business throughout North America, South America, and Europe. After college, Cullen joined the family business, where he soon made his mark. He is known for his competitiveness. So it was in this world, and in 1962, that Cullen married his first wife, Sandra Masters, and he later admitted that although he loved her, he married her mainly because his father approved. They went on to have two sons together. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? He sounds like somebody that was really out for his father's approval. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Well, wait. Yeah. Listen. Oh. Sorry. That was bossy. Listen. Well, that's okay. I like it when you're bossy, Elena. <laughs> In the mid-60s, T. Cullen and Sandra were members of the Ridgely Country Club, where they often played doubles tennis with friends Priscilla and her second husband, Jack Wilborn. And it's on these tennis courts that T. Cullen and Priscilla fell in love, or at least they fell in lust. Okay, so I have to say that everything you have described so far is giving me like major Dallas J.R. Ewing TV show Totally. Funny you say that because some speculate the television series Dallas had his inspiration for the T. Colin Davis story and he may have been the inspiration for J.R. Ewing. 
It's kind of cool. Yeah, super cool. I sort of want to go back and watch that, like the original one, not the new one. Oh, yeah. The new one was terrible. Oh, sorry. Is that okay to say? I mean, yeah, it's your opinion. Okay, it is. I, I didn't watch totally the new opinion. one, so I don't know. But I, I'd love to go back and watch yeah, the old one. we should do that. We have a lot to watch. We'll add it to our list. Yeah. <laughs> so Priscilla grew up in Houston and married her first husband when she was only 16. It didn't last, and she soon was divorced with her first daughter. By the time she was 20, she married her second husband, Jack Wilborn, a Houston used car dealer who eventually brought her to Fort Worth. While in Fort Worth, they had two children and moved up the financial and then social ladders, which eventually brought them in the circle of the Colons at the country club. She was a tiny, busty, platinum blonde dynamo, far removed from the conservative traditional Fort Worth socialites. Now, after meeting at tennis, Priscilla and Colin were almost instantaneously attracted to each other and often met for trysts at the Green Oaks Inn in Fort Worth, even returning there after arriving back from an Acapulco New Year's Day getaway. It was at this time, following their time in Mexico, that the affair made national news when a private investigator hired by Jack Wilborn kicked in the motel door, followed by Sandra and Jack. They walked in to see a nude Priscilla and T. Colin in his underwear. That's mortifying for everybody involved. Yes. And the they were taking pictures of them. It reminds me of that TV show. Um, well, shoot, maybe we have to cut this if I can't think of the name, but like, were they filmed? Like, oh, Cheaters? Cheaters. Yes. Yeah. That was a good show. Yeah. Maybe it, Cheaters got their inspiration from this. Oh, yeah. could be. Could be. Because, you know, you've got like the investigator jumping in. You've got the, right. the spouses there. Could be. That was a really good show, but it was filmed in Dallas. So I mostly liked watching it to find places that I've seen. Yeah. I think good is like maybe in quotes right. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I read that actually they were all un, in divorce proceedings at this time. So it shouldn't have been so shocking about this, but I'm sure it helped during the divorce litigation. Um, so even if maybe they, you know, their spouses knew about this, this helped them to, you know, get more, whatever they were you know, right. arguing Well, she lost over. custody of her children because of oh, that. Oh, well, then yeah. that would probably so, be it. Right. So eventually both parties divorced and on August 29th of 1969, T. Colin and Priscilla wed hours after Davis's father, Stinky Davis, died. Okay. So he, do you, I mean, do you think they had planned this wedding? Because you said he really married his other wife because dad approved. Right. Yes. They had or already. Or do you think dad died and they're like, okay, now we can get married. That's what it seemed like. Like they already, already had plans to do this. And then as soon as he died, they're like, okay, it's go time. We're ready. Okay. Yep. Either it's just really bad coincidence. <laughs> he didn't like her. He the uh, stinky thought that she came from the wrong side of the tracks and didn't like kind of her loud, boisterous personality. So wait until he died and got married. I, I'm still just blown away. Like I'm thinking, even if you had a wedding planned and your dad had died, wouldn't you reschedule? Well, I think they were waiting for him to die. For That's because what it his seems father, like. yeah. Okay. So yeah. By all accounts, T. Colin and Priscilla lived a great life together for a few years. He seemed to indulge her every wish, and she relished being the wife of an oil tycoon. It gets a little tawdry here, so if you don't like a little smut, cover your ears. But y'all don't cover your ears because I'll have to listen to this. It was widely rumored that Priscilla and T. Colin hosted drug-fueled sex orgies during these early years of their marriage. But, I mean, we're talking about the 70s here, right? So, like, key parties and wasn't that just a thing a lot of people did then? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't alive, so I wasn't doing it. <laughs> I mean, on t I guess on television and movies, they, they did that, but I don't know. 
Do you I mean, know? that's ask, that's at least the reputation. I mean, okay. we should ask our parents how um, I'm not asking them that. I, yeah, I'm not asking my <laughs> parents about a key party. <laughs> <laughs> you ask yours and come back to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, that's what you see in movies from the 1970s. Right. And, you know, everything that happened in the movies is real. Right. We don't really know how much of that was true or how much was gossip, but a Texas monthly article once said of it, quote, in the minds of some, that had to mean drugs and free sex. Fort Worth's definition of an orgy is a light burning after midnight. So they kind of <laughs> downplayed the, the gossip, but... What isn't up for debate is that in addition to that, Priscilla had grown very comfortable with her new breast implants and was not ashamed to show them off on a whim and even wore a diamond-encrusted necklace that said, rich bitch. When asked about Priscilla, a family friend said, quote, Priscilla was five foot two, feisty blonde. She had big hair, big bosom, and packed a Texas-sized personality in that little frame. She sounds fun. She does sound fun. <laughs> sounds totally fun. Friends of the couple consider Priscilla to be just another one of T. Collins' possessions that he loved to show off. Though behind closed doors, he was strict, extraordinarily possessive, and intolerant of mistakes. Now back to where we started, Stonegate Mansion. When T. Cullen and Priscilla moved into their mammoth residence, things went from idyllic to illicit. The house move represented the beginning of the end. According to multiple reports, Cullen began to physically abuse Priscilla, even breaking her nose multiple times and her collarbone once. It kind of makes me cringe thinking about that. Mm -hmm. She was reported to have told friends that she was injured in skiing accidents when they questioned her bumps, bruises, and injuries. This is tough, but he, it's also reported that T. Colin abused his oldest stepdaughter, Dee, and killed her cat by repeatedly smashing it on the ground. Oh, my God. One report I saw in an article said he admitted to doing that to the cat. He admitted to hitting her, Priscilla, once and killing the cat. Like That's an, I mean, that's mind-blowing. Yeah. Okay, so they didn't immediately move into this house Correct. after they got married. Right, All right. 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 So it's only once they moved into the house that things, the things went. went bad. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Later on, an attorney reflected on them as, quote, when Colin and Priscilla got together, it was really like the perfect storm. It was great until it wasn't. And when it went bad, it went really bad. So two years after moving into Stonegate, the arguments and abuse finally reached its breaking point and Priscilla and Colin separated and began seeing other people. Priscilla moved onto former TCU basketball star Stan Farr, a teddy bear of a bearded man despite his six-foot-ten frame, who quickly moved into the mansion. Stan Farr, by all accounts, was a nice guy involved in many failing businesses and was rumored to have always had an eye for the, quote, rich ladies. Gregarious, he was friends with musicians like David Allen Coe. I like to quote, I found that Priscilla said about him, quote, if God can find anything dirty about Sam's in my relationship, says Priscilla, then, well, we'll have to answer to God. He let me be me. The kids were about grown up. I had been an adult all my life. And now once I could be a kid. That makes me sad. Yeah. Well, didn't she have a daughter like really early? Yeah, like 16. Uh, okay. She had three kids by the time she was 27. Everything I read about her was that she had grown up without very much money, without a father in Houston. And she got out of there real quickly at 16 and and really never had like kind of like a real normal childhood. Mm -hmm. So I guess now that her, you know, youngest was 12, I, you know, I could see her thinking, okay, right. now it's time for me, me time. Do y'all know that song Fancy by Reba McIntyre? I love that song. I know, song. me too. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. I don't know why. Oh, a little bit. Something about it kind of. So as the divorce proceedings dragged on, a judge banned Colin Davis from the mansion. Can you imagine like he designed this place for five years. He bought all this art for it, spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars and they kicked him out. <laughs> she got to stay. So as the divorce proceedings went on, a judge banned Colin Davis from the mansion. Can you imagine that? Like he's 
built this home. It took him five years. He cut out pictures in magazines. He spent so th- so much money on art. And I bet that made him irate. I'm I mean, sure. It was definitely his passion project. It's on his family's land, mm-hmm. which, you know, is sort of an important heritage kind oh, of right. male pride thing, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah. bet he was furious. So he's out. She's in. And then on... August 2nd of 1976, we're back at the Stonegate Mansion, and it's the exact same day that the judge ruled that Davis would have to pay more in spousal support. Wait, so she gets the house and he's paying her spousal support? Yes, and it's actually the third increase of spousal support. That's crazy. Um, My husband's always told me I don't get any spousal support if we get divorced. So that's just the way it is in Texas. I feel like maybe I've been hoodwinked. Well, yeah, he's a lawyer. Not that I'm planning divorce, but— I would get another lawyer to check in on that. <laughs> so. I'm very happily married for the time yeah, right. being, though. Yeah, so. Yes. So on this exact same day, August 2nd, 1976, that the judge ruled that Davis would have to pay more in spousal support, the murder occurs. Wow. Right now. That evening, Priscilla Davis and Stan Farr went out to a late dinner at 9 p.m. They left Priscilla's 12-year-old daughter, Andrea Wilborn, home alone. This wasn't that unusual, according to Priscilla's other daughter, Dee. Per D, they had an elaborate security system that Andrea used and Priscilla turned on before she left. We know that Andrea was alone in the mansion at least as late as 10.30 p.m. when she talked on the phone with a friend. Upon arriving back at the home from dinner sometime after midnight, Stan and Priscilla noticed that the alarm system was disarmed and all the lights in the home were off. When they entered the home, Stan retreated through the kitchen and into the doorway that had stairs that led to the primary bedroom. Priscilla stayed in the kitchen and began calling out for Andrea, who was home alone that evening. That's terrifying. Yes. What What would you do? Would you enter the home? Yeah. You, okay. I would go looking for my kid immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So having seen a bloody handprint on the wall, Priscilla screamed for Stan. As she was screaming, a man wearing all black and in a woman's black wig appeared, said hi, and shot her once in the chest. Stan, having heard all the commotion, raced down the stairs and back into the kitchen where he was shot four times. Priscilla, wounded, makes a run for it, and the assailant attempts to go after her when he hears a car pull into the driveway. Meanwhile, in a horrible case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, 19-year-old Beverly Bass and her 21-year-old boyfriend and future husband, Gus Bubba Gavril, are pulling into the mansion driveway where Bubba was escorting Beverly, a friend of Priscilla's daughter, Dee, to spend the night. The gunman fires another round, hitting Bubba. Man, talk about you know, another situation, like you said, of being in the wrong place at the right. wrong time. Yeah, it was like that in the Manson episode. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm gonna start texting y'all every time I come to your house just to make sure all is well. We need a code word. Our murder's not happening. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> I'm not going near it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, okay. Stunned, Priscilla and Beverly began to run. Running in the dark and running for their lives, they made it to a neighbor's house and hid until the police arrived. Immediately, Priscilla told police that the man in all black and the wig was her estranged husband, T. Colin Davis. Still not knowing where or what happened to Andrea, police returned to 4100 Stonegate Boulevard. They found blood everywhere and a home in disarray. As they walked to the home, they found the body of 12-year-old Andrea shot execution style in the chest in the basement of the mansion in a room that housed most of the mansion's electrical apparatus. Stan was found where he was shot in the kitchen, and Bubba was found shot but alive. The wound ultimately left him paralyzed for the rest of his life. Nothing apparently was stolen from the home that night. Priscilla, Beverly, and Bubba all ID'd Davis, and police arrested him that night at the home that he shared with his new girlfriend and future third wife, Karen Master. Later, the police learned that Colin's brother, Ken, had called and woke him to tell him about the shootings. 
Later, the police learned that Colin's brother, Ken, had called and woke him to tell him about the shootings. Apparently, you're not going to believe this. He said, well, I guess I'm going back to bed. Oh, my God. I know. What an ass. A Fort Worth detective later said that when he asked Colin why so many people had to be shot at the mansion, he replied, sometimes a man doesn't need a reason. Crazy. Yeah. So, wait, at this point, do they think he did? I mean, obviously, they think he did it because... They all, three of them, I did him. Right. Okay. From the start, and probably because of his wealth and stature, Davis was already being treated differently at the time of his arrest. He was allowed to dress, he put on a sports coat, and he was not handcuffed. Seems like a trend we see where, you know, maybe the rich and powerful are held to a different standard in mm-hmm. these crimes or treated differently. Right. Yeah. Goes back to John Bonet. Absolutely. The, yeah. Yeah. He was not treated as someone who was the main suspect in the unnecessary and brutal murders of a defenseless man and a 12 year old girl. Within hours of his arrest, he was free, having paid the $80,000 bail. Wait, this guy is like a multimillionaire. And his bail for shooting four people and killing two people was $80,000? Unbelievable. You would think they would at least like had to want to keep his right. passport or something. Right, because he could totally take off and leave. So, so far, it seems like a slam dunk case. We have three people who survived and they ID'd him. Um, he had said these crazy things to his brother-in-law when, when his brother-in-law called him. So let's get into the trial. The prosecutor, believing that she would be seen as the most sympathetic victim, decided to only try Davis for the murder of Andrea Wilborn. I mean, that seems like an interesting angle. There weren't any witnesses to her murder. Right. Yeah. I guess he was trying to just tug on heartstrings. Yeah. Okay. When the state charged Davis with capital murder, he was made, at the time, the richest American murder defendant ever. Facing the death penalty, Davis hired this celebrity-like, cowboy hat-wearing Texas attorney, Richard Racehorse Haynes, for a trial that was moved to Amarillo. Wait, his name is Racehorse? Yes. Does everybody in Fort Worth have nicknames? That's the best nickname, I think, so far. Racehorse. So, question, is Haynes like the current Haynes and Boone? Do we know? Oh, I don't know. I bet it is. That's a big law firm here in Dallas. That's a huge law firm. I bet it is. Could be. I don't know. We'll we'll fact check that in a bit. Yeah, totally. So, Racehorse is crazy. It is once said that in the courtroom, he shocked himself with a cattle prod to show that while it, quote, hurt like hell, it's not deadly. Sort of like this guy. Ah, (laughs) it's loose cannon. After entering a plea of not guilty, Racehorse went to work digging up anything that would tarnish Priscilla's reputation and credibility. In 1970s Texas, I'm sure that it wasn't hard to turn the masses against a busty, beautiful, less refined woman. Racehorse hired a private investigator and soon learned about parties that Priscilla was throwing at the mansion. In trial, he claimed these parties were dope and sex-filled, and he even attacked her for what he deemed excessive spending. Priscilla took the stand and for 11 days endured questions about her sex life, her prescription drug use, reportedly started after the murders and her parties. It was prescription drugs that she was taking because of her wound. She was shot in the chest. Well, and her daughter had just died. Right. So, you know, hook me up to some IV of something good. Right, right. That's awful. Okay. Racehorse... Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just wanted to like, I'm thinking 11 days, we all just watched the Alec Murdoch trial, right? And so I think we have a good feel for what a day of testimony is like. 11 days, that is grueling. Right. Okay, sorry to interrupt, Elena. No, you're fine. No, I think I read later that this was actually like a three-month trial. This was like one of the longest trials, and but it all hinged upon the interviews with her. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, they had to moved it to Amarillo, um, you know, which is more kind of like in the West Texas. And it was like the trial of the century for that area. Right. 
racehorse showed a now famous photo of her at the Colonial Annual Golf Tournament. We talked about that earlier. It's like a throwback. Yeah. She was dressed scantily. Um, I think she looks adorable. And by today's standards, no one would even bat an eye. But in 1960s Texas, at a golf tournament, no less, people looked down on this. Of course, in a blatant display of double standards, they didn't bring up the time that T. Colin allegedly had a viewing of the notorious porno Deep Throat in a Winnebago park in the Colonial parking lot during the famous PGA tournament. Oh, this is not the Colonial Golf Tournament that I attended. Let's put it that way. No, I, I actually think that it wasn't like that bad. Like, I mean, you're right. Colonial is is fancy. It's much more upscale. The Byron Nelson is definitely the one that's a mm. little bit more crazy. Um, but yeah, no, I I mean, I think these people were kind of wild. But it's it just, it bothers me that, ooh, she looked sexy in some pictures. And meanwhile, everyone knows that he's watching pornos out in the parking lot mm-hmm. with his friends. It's like a known fact. Right. Yeah, and I'm not sure why how she dresses discredits her as a witness to what she saw. I know. It's really sad. Well, it worked, though, because the public eventually turned on Priscilla and looked to Davis as a well-respected businessman. They even, I saw that they, they, the judge allowed for people to bring treats into him, like just baked goods, and he would sign autographs and your face. I mean, I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) I'm so mad. (laughs) The state's weakness proved to be the lack of physical evidence. The trial lasted three months, and despite the prosecutors trying their best to paint a motive and pull on those heartstrings, after less than five hours of deliberations, the jury came back with a verdict of not guilty. So it was basically a trial against Priscilla and not against Colin Davis. It's really gross. It is. Unfortunately, we see that victim shaming today. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. 100%. So I told you about the judge allowing for him to accept baked goods from people who visit him at the court and he signed autographs. Um, But he also threw a party that night, the day that he was acquitted. And he invited the judge, the jury, and the media to come to this giant party. What a conceited asshole. Yeah. That is in such poor taste. According to a 2000 Texas Monthly Magazine article, one of the jurors said, rich men don't kill their wives. They hire someone else to do it. Okay. So let me see if I've got this right. Colin's stepdaughter was killed on the day in which a judge had delivered a devastating blow to Colin in his divorce proceedings. Mm-hmm. His ex-wife that he's in the middle of these divorce proceedings with is shot. Her boyfriend is killed. And another man is shot while another woman sees the shooter and flees the scene. Mm-hmm. Now, the home had a security system, right, that had been turned off. Right. And the three surviving witnesses identified Colin as the shooter. All three witnesses indicate that the only disguise the shooter wore was a wig. So they could see his face. Nothing was stolen. And the killer stayed there after killing the daughter, waiting for Priscilla and Stan to return. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like this is a lot of circumstantial evidence that would have convinced just about anyone Yet he was found not guilty, and the wife was the problem because she was too sexy. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk. I I just can't. I can't get over the victim blaming in this. It's just to me sounds par for the course. Nineteen seventies Texas. I mean, I I guess. I think. I'm curious, and maybe you don't know. Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. But why did the trial get sent to Amarillo? I mean, for those that aren't familiar with Texas geography, Amarillo is about what, like, six hours west of Fort Worth. It's, it's a good distance. It's not like just the neighboring city. Right. I can't remember exactly. Do you remember, Melanie? 
Um, I think it's just one of those situations that it was such a high-profile, well-known mm. case with high-profile um, people that you know, they wanted maybe to get all, And maybe all the judges in Fort Worth yeah. knew the family or something like that. Yeah, probably something like that. Could be. I, I'm, and even though Fort Worth probably, they didn't like this behavior from her, I'm sure in Amarillo, that would be really shocking to hear about some of her behavior and the clothes she wore and the necklace she yeah, wore. Yeah, Amarillo and, would be considered a little more conservative, mm-hmm. I think, than Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in that same 2000 Texas Monthly article, summarized it well, saying, Long before O.J. Simpson, Cullen was a symbol of what is sometimes called rich people's justice. According to his detractors, he spent millions of dollars on lawyers and investigators to manufacture reasonable doubt and beat the rap. After the trial, Cullen Davis returned to his company, his fortune, and Fort Worth society with his new wife. So you think the story is done? But wait, there's more. On August 20th, 1978, exactly one year to the day of the start of his trial, Cullen is once again arrested. This time it was for the solicitation of murder. Okay, so it's a bit confusing, but basically a man by the name of David McCrory had worked as an investigator for Cullen's defense team the year before. Now he was also an FBI informant. And from what I read, apparently he had let the FBI know that Cullen had approached him with a hit list of supposedly more than a dozen people that included key individuals from the trial, such as Priscilla, Beverly Bass, Gus Gavril, and even the judge who's presiding over his not yet finalized divorce case. I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the story goes that on August 20th, McCrory met Davis while wearing a wire to show him a picture taken of the judge who appeared dead by a gunshot wound. The federal agents had actually faked the death of the judge, taking four photographs of him covered in ketchup and stuffed into the trunk of a car. They then had the informant show Cole in the photos and say, I got Judge Edison for you. Cullen replied, good. The informant said, you want Beverly Bass killed next? Quick, right? Cullen answered, all right. Cullen gave McCrory $25,000 and the other murders were discussed. Afterwards, he was arrested and sent to trial again. But once again, good old racehorse was there to bail him out. It was even said he raised his fees, which Cullen gladly paid. Okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. They have him on a wire (laughs) with an FBI informant informant paying him money like Mm. that's about as open and shut as it gets right right right. okay i don't know what happens in this case i haven't heard this story yet but if he's not convicted i'm gonna be really angry Uh uh-oh called to the stand colin told a long story that it was actually priscilla who had hired hitmen to bump him off and that he had received a phone call from an fbi agent who said an informant was trying to extort him for money Supposedly, Colin should play along and talk about killing people so the feds could gather evidence. Of course, now that was all a cover, Colin told the jury. He realized that he had been tricked and the FBI wasn't really involved. Despite all of this, Colin Davis was acquitted once again in November 1979. Amazingly, one of the second set of jurors was quoted as saying they, quote, just couldn't find a way to convince ourselves that a man of Colin's wealth would lower himself to have the judge killed. Wow. I mean, again, I keep having flashbacks to Alec Murdaugh mm. and how, you know, you can tell a story and... They're treated differently. It is. Yeah. It's okay. really sad. Later on, Priscilla's wrongful death civil lawsuit against Cullen ended in a hung jury in 1986. He was never tried for the murder of Stan Farr or the shot that paralyzed Bubba. These high-profile trials were the subject of books, countless newspaper articles, and eventually a television miniseries. Actors Peter Strauss and Heather Locklear starred as the dueling Davises in Texas Justice, a movie denounced by the individuals they portrayed. I saw a little clip of it. It was very tawdry. I haven't seen it. 
maybe it's on my list for this weekend. Yeah. Not kid appropriate, I assume. No. Mm-mm. Amazingly, after the divorce, Colin Davis won the mansion back from Priscilla and moved back in there with his new wife. Supposedly, they would have dinner and parties and show guests around, including the location that Andrea had been murdered. What is with these people giving tours of their homes? I don't know. Just a uh, hubris? I guess. So they lived there until around 1984 when they sold it to real estate investors. In 1980, Colin Davis publicly professed a conversion to the Christian faith during a Baptist church service in a Fort Worth suburb. He and his wife became active members of a congregation, dropping their high-profile social lifestyle. In the mid-1980s, creditors took Ken Davis Industries to bankruptcy court to regain hundreds of millions of dollars in loans. Those in the oil industry watched their fortunes plummet, and Colin Davis faced a series of civil lawsuits. You're not going to believe this, but he's still alive. He's living a much less privileged life. His third wife died in 2016, but he's still alive. In fact, in his later years, he had a new career, peddling skincare cream from his home. What? Yeah. But he's still alive. I don't know. Maybe. I want to know what kind of skincare he was peddling. I know, That's seriously. hilarious. Yeah. Is he like Sally Mary Kay or something? I don't know. I, I read some interviews, um, I guess, for a big anniversary, and some of the reporters came over, and he was taking like a, some sort of high-tech petroleum jelly and was rubbing it on his wrinkles and his hands and high showing tech. how nice it was. High-tech petroleum jelly? I mean, I, I, something. Something like that. But yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. This makes me really sad. Priscilla never remarried and moved to Dallas. Eventually, she lost most of her money, but ended up raising her granddaughter, also named Priscilla. She died of breast cancer on February 19th, 2001 in Dallas and continued to blame T. Colin for the crime. That is really sad. Do you want to know what happened to Stonegate after it was sold? Yeah. It's been a steakhouse, a Mexican restaurant, a church, and an event slash wedding venue. Those are really weird things to be in a house where Mm -hmm. a homicide occurred. Mm -hmm. But my friends that were telling us to do this episode, I guess they were at TCU and probably the 90s. And so I think they went there when it was an event venue. Mm, Yeah. I saw some pictures from social media from when it was an event venue and there were weddings and they were really pretty, but I couldn't get over. I wouldn't be able to get over that. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to post a couple of pictures of this house in the different decades up on our social crime and on the... Our website, crimestate.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a, a New York Times article from when it became a Mexican restaurant, and apparently the waiters would show people around. They had filled in the uh, pool, and so it was filled in, and people would eat on the pool, and then they would show them different rooms in the house. I mean, this is kind of crazy. Yeah, I read that same Mexican restaurant. The basement area where they found Andrea's body, they would rent out. Like, you could have parties in, in there and private dining just sad. That feels so mm-hmm. um, voyeuristic. Right. Yeah. Okay. So over time, this became highly valuable real estate. Despite the high acreage, this is not a rural area. This is relatively close to downtown and a highly sought after area. I mean, there's a Trader Joe's right around the corner. You know, it's good then. Right. In December of 2021, demolition began. And in January 2022, the city approved a zoning request by developer and co-owner Zach Paulson. The site will be a cluster of 30 luxury townhomes. So ladies, pull out your pocketbooks. But on this one, I want to know if you would visit a restaurant or host an event or get married in Stonegate Mansion. Then, of course, would you buy it? Would you list it or live in it? Ooh. um, Yeah, I mean, I think I would. I don't know that I would choose to host my event there, Mm -hmm. but 
if I were, I would attend an event if that's, if that's something somebody invited me to, and it's something I wanted to attend. Mm -hmm. And I probably would go to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think I would request a tour. Right. (laughs) And I would need the restaurant to be good on its own, not just Mm -hmm. because of its location. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. What about you, Melanie? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I would like to think that I'm better than that. But um, yeah, I mean, I would want to go to the restaurant to check it out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would. Uh, definitely would not choose to have an event and definitely not have a wedding there. And I think it's bizarre that it was a church at one time. Yes. That's really, really mm-hmm. weird. Um, but yeah, sure, I would go go to it. Um, and, uh, you know, don't judge me on that one. No, no judgment. No judgment. What about you, Elena? Uh, no, Mm-mm. I would not go to a restaurant or a wedding there. I couldn't. Mm-mm. I, I, I fear like residual stuff. I know. You're I definitely the pickiest of the three yeah. of us. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Melly's like, if it's got good food. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. I, if it were a home, I would, I would list it. I would not buy it or live in it. Yeah, I think it's probably like one of those um, hip pocket listings like we talked about, mm-hmm. like with JonBenet or something like that, where you would have so many looky-loos that you would have to quietly mm-hmm. market it just to other agents. But um, I wouldn't buy it just because that's not my style. I mean, 19,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. I may not also buy it because of the crime. It seems very violent, but um, I mean, I want a home, not a monstrosity. Right. Yeah, I think it was also so notorious. I mean, everybody knew about it. And yeah, I mean, I don't think you'd want to be quite that public. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have live in a home that something horrible had happened at. It was sort of on the down low. <laughs> but this is this is not, you know, one of those situations. Yeah, maybe your rule of thumb is like if there's a mini series about it, yeah, it's not probably oh, an option right, for you. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that closes the door on this story. Um, You know, we're going to be back next week to share another crime estate with all of you guys. And uh, next week we are going to France. Oh, that's going to be fun. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing that we want to tell our listeners, you know, they say it on all these podcasts, but like us, you know, um, subscribe and please rate us. We would love a five star and we would also love ideas. I mean, you guys probably have some great ideas of different homes and different crimes that you want us to investigate and talk about. And we are open for business. Perfect. See y'all next week. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature, Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. <laughs>